Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with a massive outbreak at the Roslyn Retirement Residence, the city now has 65 more COVID cases. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us with an update. Moderna Incorporated says they're seeing promising results from their vaccine trials. Meanwhile, U.S. President Donald Trump admits that he's taking a very controversial drug for about a week and a half now. To discuss this, Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us. And Joe Biden said that if he becomes president, he's going to scrap the permits for the Keystone XL pipeline. We'll get some reaction to that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get a local update. Uh, this was, a, a, as we mentioned, a pivotal weekend. A, lamp, a number of businesses and uh, public spaces opened up uh, this past holiday weekend. Uh, we also saw uh, an increase in some of the cases of COVID-19, which is going to be somewhat troubling. I know uh, Paul Johnson, the, uh, the head of the emergency response team, uh, had this to say about the numbers. It's evolving. I can tell you we've got lots of people on, on site ensuring that proper care is there. The challenge, of course, is in a 24-7 operation with vulnerable individuals. Uh, it isn't good enough to have, have uh, the right number of staff there for five or six hours. It has to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's our concern right now. That being, of course, the Roslyn Retirement Home, uh, which uh, had a real spike over the weekend. 52 residents from that home were transferred to Hamilton Hospitals after an outbreak of COVID-19 at the facility. 12 residents had already been hospitalized, so the uh, the facility is now essentially empty, and it has caused a spike with the hospital, St. Joe's being among those. Joining us to talk about this and uh, some of the goings-on this past weekend, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us on the Bill Keller Show. Mr. Mayor, good morning. Thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Good morning. I uh, trust you Trust you had a good weekend uh, driving around, making sure that everybody was keeping their social distances uh, in all the wonderful facilities that have been opened up. Well, I, I got to enjoy uh, Bayfront Park and, uh, and uh, the Waterfront Trail along Lake Ontario. So uh, I, I got to enjoy that one yesterday when it was blustery and rainy. There was nobody there but uh, the dog and I. So social social distancing was working perfectly, but a, a couple of days before that, on that brilliantly uh, you know sunny day on Saturday, everybody was out and about. I would say by and large, people were keeping their distance, but there's still a tendency for you know far too much congregation down there, as well as at uh, Bayfront Park and other locations. So I just just going to ask people to uh, maintain the posture of uh, you know physical separation. Uh, if you're not well, stay home as much as you can. This virus is still out there, and we don't want to go back to that the complete and all-out shutdown. And that really means that people have to be mindful of that uh, that physical separation wherever they go. So hopefully, we don't see a spike, but we'll know uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, two or three weeks is kind of the lag time, and so we'll know what what this, this slight opening has meant to the number of cases we're going to have in our community. And we're seeing a, a minor spike at the moment, but uh, hopefully that will that will decrease. Well, I know you're going to get an update later on today from Dr. Richardson and Paul Johnson and others on your emergency team. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, we do know statistically that I guess there are about 27 or 28 tickets that were handed out this past weekend, basically for people that were not complying with the, the standards that you had set. Uh, it's right. not quite as crazy as some of the, uh, the the video, I guess, we've seen from some of the places down in the States. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, your, your point is well taken here, Mr. Mayor, that uh, just the fact that you can walk those parks or you can go play golf does not mean that uh, we forget about everything else here, that uh, that virus is still out there. Very much so, and it's, uh, it, it is, you know, the, the, quote, new normal, and uh, that new normal is going to be with us for quite some time. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you open up at this point. As long as that virus is out there, then uh, every organization, every business, everywhere you go, you need to be mindful of the fact that either you or someone else could be carrying this virus. 
and that virus can then spread, uh, you know, not only from uh, from you to them, but to everyone else that you come into contact with. So to, to, to see the, I mean, it's, it's viral because, and it's a virus virally spreading because it really goes quickly. And so uh, you, you don't have to have symptoms. You don't have to have a cough or a sneeze. You could be carrying that virus and unwittingly giving that to somebody else. So don't, don't, don't assume that uh, this virus is not going to be on you or anyone else. Assume that it is and, and act accordingly. And if we do that, then we're going to have a much better chance of uh, maintaining control over this virus. And, you know, right now, it is really trying to maintain control over this virus. So trying to control uh, any outbreak, uh, trying to get on top of those outbreaks rather quickly. So more testing will need to be done. And as that testing reveals uh, cases, that uh, the contacts that people have to come into contact with need to be traced down as well. If we can do that successfully, then we can somewhat contain this. But the virus is still going to be out there until a vaccine arrives that says, uh, you know, we're now able to... Uh, inoculate you against this virus uh, and that seems to me by all accounts uh, at least a year away maybe even more we should also caution people mr mayor because i know that uh, a lot of folks that we've been talking to over the last uh, few weeks now i guess a couple of months uh seem to to want to compartmentalize this and say well look at this is really just something that older people that are in retirement homes are prone to and that's not the case at all uh, although you know we just talked about the situation that happened at the roslyn uh, home just a little while ago but what it did cause is a spike 127 uh admittances to uh to the hospitals around here now that's not quite the spike that uh, we were warned of but it is significant for the hospitals and in, you know these hospitals that are now trying to get back and start doing some of those selective surgeries and elective surgeries uh may have second thoughts about it because they see something like this i mean you know the the whole concept here as you mentioned is is to stop the the, the spread of this virus and and uh that's not just in retirement homes that seems to be in just about every capacity one of the fatalities one of the people who died over the weekend sadly uh was somebody who was living in the community a 60 year old man who uh, was not mm-hmm. in one of these homes so it's it's there sadly yeah, and, and you know what, uh, a congregate home is where people are living with close in close proximity to one another. is a bit of a canary in the coal mine. It, it, it really indicates to you how quickly this thing can spread from one to another and infect an entire population that are living together. And if you if you now think about groups coming together, whether it's for, you know, a game of whatever, a game of basketball or a game of soccer, or let's have our families get together and have a picnic, uh, that the spread of that virus can go exactly the same way uh, in that kind of an environment as it would in a congregate setting. And, and your earlier point about, you know, all, all ages being impacted by this, uh, we're now seeing, uh, you know, cases in, in New York State uh, that, that, that are affecting children with a, a rare reaction to COVID-19, all about uh, inflammatory muscle disease and all kinds of, kind of crippling <clears throat> impacts that, uh, you know, we, we need to now worry about for our children. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to be the, uh, the, you know, the bearer of bad news all the time. I think we just need to be realistic. Uh, we're going to get through this, and uh, but, it, but we're going to get through this if we're smart. And so uh, being smart means uh, be, be aware of this virus, be aware of the fact that you may be carrying it and you can give it to someone else, and be aware of the fact that uh, many people in our community can be, can, can be seriously harmed by this, doesn't matter what your age is. And if you have an underlying health issue, uh, you know, if you're if you're 50 years old and you have diabetes, uh, you are you are at risk of uh, much more serious impacts from this COVID-19 uh, issue. If you're 50 years old or 40 years old and you're obese, uh, you have a higher risk 
of contracting this and uh, and having it being a serious issue for you and potentially ending up in hospital. So th- this is not a trivial matter. We've been successful so far in containing this uh, because we've shut down. As we now start to open up, as we all want to do, uh, we just have to be mindful of the fact that the same issues apply. Wash your hands, cough into your elbow, maintain that six-foot separation. Don't, don't uh, you know, gather in groups of larger than five at the moment. That, that might relax a little in the next few days. We'll see. But um, right now it's five. Uh, if you bear all of that in mind, uh, we're going to be just fine. If we don't, then uh, we could very well be seeing a spike that uh, none of us would want. Mr. Mayor, let's talk a little bit the opening. As I say, we went through phase one of this over this past weekend, and you know we've seen some of the numbers, and we'll get a clear picture of that uh, from you and your, your your staff a little bit later on today. Mm-hmm. But when the Premier announced this just a, a few days ago, late last week, uh, he was pretty vague about what they were actually going to use as criteria for this as to whether or not they were going to move on to phase two, which I assume is going to be some restaurants and things of this nature. We're not there yet here in Ontario, and we're certainly not there uh, here in Hamilton. Uh, do you take your cue from the province on this, or does the city itself have any leeway as to where they want to move forward on something like this well i would hope to think that we have leeway and i think we uh we, we as a collection of mayors in the greater toronto hamilton area got together and, and agreed collectively that we were going to be guided by public health and science on this not by politics and so you know we've seen uh, a little bit of a political move on the provincial side to uh, to maybe relax things prior to you know the caseloads coming down uh, so there is a slight trend down, but certainly not not to the degree you would say, "Boy, we're we're out of the woods now. Let's let's start opening things up." So I I, I would I, I think that collectively we're gonna we're gonna work with our public health officials and uh, and, and work on the data and science. And uh, as the mayor, as the premier had said, uh, I think he said this over the weekend that no one's holding a gun to the to the mayor's head. So uh, that that indicates to me that uh, we're gonna have some latitude and I. I worry about there being variances between municipalities. And so this agreement between the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area mayors kind of indicates that we're going to collectively kind of wind this thing down and, and or wind it up uh, by virtue of public health recommendations and do it collectively so that we don't have you know, one community opening up the doors wide and all of a sudden there's a rush into Oakville, let's say. Uh, and and then potentially you know causing them problems when we can uh, we we need to do this uh, collaboratively collectively and not create a spike for any one municipality across the Greater Toronto Hamilton area. It's going to be challenging to work that out, but that's certainly the uh, the philosophy that we're working with right now. Mr. Mayor, I want to switch gears for just a second. I, I understand that the number one priority, as it should be, of course, is is the reopening and dealing with the the COVID nineteen virus and, and and the impact it's having on the economy. Uh, but there is a sidebar issue that I know you're aware of and have had some discussions about, and that, of course, was Hamilton's bid for the Commonwealth Games. We we know now that uh, that's kind of morphed into not the 2030 but the 2026 bids, if Council so chooses. And I know that that's kind of in the back burner right now, but we're getting some indications from the International Committee and from the group, the, the Hamilton 100 Committee, uh, that there is an urgency here that, uh, that the council is going to have to deal with this sooner than later. Uh, are, are we going to do that? Is there going to be some decision and some, some discussion within you and the rest of the councillors about how Hamilton is going to move forward or not move forward on this? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think uh, the uh, the uh, Hamilton 100 group has been actively working, and I give them credit that they're uh, you know they're they're looking down the road and aspiring to you know ec- economic stimulus for our community. Uh, there there's been a bit of a switch on the international side on uh, you know 2030 as opposed to 2026. 
Uh, I think there's some merit in that and uh, certainly doesn't have the kind of uh, 100th anniversary cachet that the the 2030 date would have. But if there's uh, an economic advantage here and maybe in terms of timing, uh, you know, might improve our opportunity to get the kind of economic stimulus that uh, this could provide, uh, I, I think there's absolute merit in looking at that. So I'm looking forward to getting a proposal from the Hamilton 100 group. And, uh, and bringing that to council. And uh, ultimately, it'll be a council decision whether or not we stick with uh, 2030 or we go with the 2026. Now, I, I, I know that this group is doing everything possible to make it a kind of a zero-sum game for the municipalities. In other words, that the private sector picks up the, uh, the kind of the Hamilton contribution and that the federal and provincial governments have indicated that they're, uh, they're supportive. And I know that they've also met with mayors, uh, you know, across the region here, Greater Toronto Hamilton area, about their support, and they're getting, uh, you know, positive feedback from all of them in terms of participating in this kind of broader games approach with facilities in their community. So I, I think it starts to, to create a package that uh, that starts to make some sense, and I'm certainly looking forward to having a look at the details and then bringing that to council. Uh, is one of the main factors here the fact, that for all intents and purposes, it seems as if the international committee is basically saying it's yours if you want it. The competition has pretty much all gone to the side there. These The 2026 games apparently seem to be ours if we decide to go down that road. Yeah, and that's certainly helpful. I mean, that uh, that, that takes, it takes the, the whole uncertainty of the bid process out of the picture, and, and including the cost that uh, that's associated with that. Uh, I know they uh, they're 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 looking hard to get someone to fill the bill for 2026. Uh, I would say to them that uh, we we also want to be able to celebrate 2030 as the anniversary of the games in some manner or another, and I think that needs to be part of the package, some sort of an indicator of the the beginnings of the games and uh, where it all where it all started through uh, you know Mr. Robinson here in Hamilton deciding you know 100 years ago that uh, these commonwealths uh, needed a great sports and entertainment games that, uh, that would help uh, engineer uh, sporting activities and facilities across the country uh, and across the commonwealth. And uh, that certainly has been hugely successful. And so whatever we come to, uh, that, that 100th anniversary still has to be very much a part of the celebration of the Empire Loyalist games that started right here in Hamilton. The uh, the other element to this, of course, is is the cost, etc. But we also I want to marry these two concepts here. Uh, trying to get over the pandemic, we've talked about economic recovery and economic renaissance, and there's some discrepancy on who, even among your own councillors, about which direction we should take. But do you see uh, a Commonwealth Games bid as part of that as part of that economic redevelopment here for the city? In other words, getting back because obviously there's going to be an influx of federal and provincial dollars into the city. Um, and uh, very much so. I mean, uh, these kinds of games leave behind uh, economic stimulus and, and facilities that, uh, that stands the test of time. And if we think about the Empire Loyalist Games and the uh, facility that was created then was the, uh, the old Iverwind Stadium and Jimmy Thompson Pool and a whole range of other HAAA grounds, all facilities that have uh, held up in our community for, uh, for many, many, many decades and are still uh, functional today. And uh, that kind of legacy uh, investment uh, creates jobs. You have to you have to build these uh, facilities. You uh, you add to the value of not only the sporting uh, empire but the uh, the construction that uh, that's associated with it. Uh, the biggest part of it uh, likely will be the housing component of it. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about affordable housing, when we're talking about the, the need for getting more people housed in terms of the homeless, 
uh, you know, a lot more discussion today about getting permanent homes for in those individuals as opposed to, you know, shelter homes. That uh, could be very much part of the investment that can come with this. That uh, could, could, be, could be a long-lasting benefit to the city, not only from a construction uh, uh, perspective, but from a long-term housing perspective as well. So there's many elements here that uh, would add value and, uh, and development. And uh, certainly post-pandemic, uh, these are the kinds of stimulus projects that uh, everyone's going to be looking for. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, thanks as, much, as always for uh, this. We'll check in with you a little bit later on this week. Stay healthy. Excellent. You too. Uh, by the way, we should mention that uh, we had uh, asked uh, Lou Forporti, of course, who was the spokesperson for the Commonwealth 100 bid, uh, to join us on the program today. Uh, he's tied up right now in a conference call with the International Committee. Uh, he will join us tomorrow on the Bill Keller Show here on CHML and obviously bring us up to speed on the conversation he's having today with them and uh, with his group going forward. We look forward to that conversation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, some fascinating news, some encouraging news about what's happening in the battle against COVID-19. One company in particular is saying that they are seeing some promising results from vaccine trials that they have done. Of course, you balance that off with uh, some of the stuff that uh, Donald Trump made over the weekend about hydroxychloroquine. We'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. Joining us to talk about all of this uh, is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who is a staff physician, uh, general and internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for making some time for today. Greatly appreciate it. Oh, not a problem at all. Happy to chat. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the encouraging news, of course, the vaccine, which is, the, I guess, the goal of everything. There's a number of groups right around the world that are working on this, but I guess the one that's seemingly making news now is a, a company called Moderna, which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, one of eight developers worldwide doing human clinical trials with the vaccine, uh, and they say they've had some pretty good results so far. What? How do you respond to that? What, what are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly promising. Um, I think we have to temper everything. With just a little bit of caution, what they reported is what we call phase one results. So that basically shows that the vaccine is relatively safe in humans and that when they gave this vaccine to humans, that uh, people were able to produce what we call antibodies, which would hopefully suggest that they're immune to COVID-19 infections. Um, we have to remember that this, this study was done, the safety tests were done in 45 people and the antibody component was only done in eight people. So, you know, this is good. This is a positive. It's an arrow in the right direction. But, you know, this is where it's far from being close to a marketable vaccine. And now they're going to be enrolling hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands and thousands of people into much larger studies that will answer, that, that are really going to answer the question, does this protect us from a COVID-19 infection? So, uh, you know, good news, but, but a long road ahead. Well, some people don't seem to think it's that long, but we'll get into that in a couple of seconds. Uh, maybe you could walk us through, Doctor, exactly why there are phases to these studies. Uh, you mentioned it was only a couple of dozen people, a few dozen people, that were involved in this study. We, and we know that, by the way, that there were some 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 concerning statistics from this, too. Uh, I guess in the study, three of the participants developed fevers and flu-like symptoms. Uh, I, they received a dose of about 250 micrograms. Uh, the usual dosage was between 25 and 100. So uh, as you walk us through this, I'm assuming that one of those, uh, uh, I guess, goals in this first stage is to determine just how much of the uh, the vaccine people need. 100%. That's exactly what these phase one trials do. You're, you're looking for safety. You're looking to find the right dose. Um, and... You know, you can maybe get some early data on, you know, is it is does it cause the body to do what you want it to do, which is make those 
antibodies, but you can't really say much more to it than that. These are really to determine if you can proceed uh, safely to the next phase, which where you're starting to look to see if the uh, if the vaccine has any any actual protection against the virus. And, you know, in all fairness, like these early dose finding studies are extremely important. And, you know, luckily, there's probably over 100 other vaccine studies ongoing worldwide. We know that most of them are going to fail. There's probably only about five five percent or maybe a little less than five percent are going to be successful. Um, and, and that's OK. That's why we need a lot of sticks in the fire here. We need uh, so many people to be working on this because they're, they're not all going to be successful. And we're going to need several different vaccines uh, in order to really tackle this. And, um, you know, l- luckily, they're all taking slightly different approaches as well. So, you know, I think we I think we will have one. Uh, I'm not sure when, but I, I think we will have one or a few that, that will be successful, hopefully in the near future. We, yeah, there are people all over the world that are doing this. We mentioned some of the ones in North America. Of course, there's some going on in, in the U.K., uh, some in China, we're told as well, although they're not quite as transparent as we might hope for uh, some of the results that we're hearing from uh, the Chinese elegant to this. But are, are they all working on variations on the same theme here, Doctor, or are they just, you know, is, is it possible that, for instance, the one that, uh, that Moderna is working on in Cambridge, Massachusetts, may be totally different from the one that, uh, that, that they're working on in the U.K.? Is, is that feasible? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to make a vaccine. And, uh, you know, if you scratch the surface, you can kind of go down this rabbit hole of different approaches and what's worked through time and what are the sort of new developments in making vaccinations. So it's it's nice to see that there are, you know, uh, really over 100 different groups working on this, all taking slightly different approaches. And and uh, I think that's uh you know, it's, it's unprecedented in that there is truly infinite brain power and infinite resources being poured into this. It truly is a global effort. And I think it's pretty clear that everyone on planet Earth realizes that the vaccine is, is quite frankly, the, our only durable solution out of this mess we're in. Uh, so you've got countries, you know, say what you will about the United States, but they have this program called Operation Warp Speed, where they're basically handpicking, you know, a dozen or so vaccine candidates that they feel are the most likely to succeed. And there's truly unlimited resources that they're pouring into it. And and, and the other interesting thing that they're doing is they're not only developing and testing these vaccines, they're simultaneously building up the manufacturing capabilities so that they can mass produce these vaccines that don't even exist yet. Uh, And that way, when they do have a winner, they can mass produce it quickly and disseminate it amongst the population. Like this isn't this has never been done before. It's absolutely incredible to watch. So there's a potential then that, that there could be two or three different uh, vaccines in, in different parts of the world, but all to the yeah. same purpose. Absolutely, and that's that's what we need. I mean, that's that's a totally reasonable outcome, and and you know it would be wonderful to have different groups or different companies that are successful that have found success using several different approaches. There's a lot of right paths here. There's going to be a lot of wrong paths, but there may be several correct paths to take as well. And that's, that's great. I'm a firm believer in science and, and clearly that's the basis and the foundation for the work that's ongoing here to try to do this. But uh, as, as these trials happen and as the work continues in, in laboratory settings like this, I mean, we, we've also heard historically, I guess, doctor, about happenstance and, you know, Alexander Fleming discovering, the, you know, penicillin, you know, and the mold situation and things like this. So you, you got to, I guess, walk into these situations with an open mind saying anything is possible and we have to go down every road. That, that's got to be time consuming, I would think. 
It, it sure is. Uh, but fortunately, in vaccine development, there are trusted and tested methods to do this. If they're not reinventing the wheel, they're already using uh, pre-existing vaccine development tools. They're already using uh, science that has demonstrated success in developing vaccines for uh, for decades. Um, some are more recent than others, but all are, are are capable of doing this. And, you know, you keep hearing this, uh, some pretty, I don't know what to say, some pretty, pretty aggressive timeline saying, you know what, we're going to have something by the end of the summer, or there's going to be something by the end of the fall. I obviously, like, I, I want this just as much as anybody else does. Uh, and, you know, maybe it will happen, but there's also a significant chance that it, that it won't. And, uh, you know, I think if it, if it is going to happen, this is, there's no time on earth where it would happen other than, you know, except for now where we have just so many groups working on this. But I, I just don't want people to have a false sense of hope thinking that we're going to have uh, needles going into arms sometime in early September and this will all brush over by December. Obviously, that would be ideal. But, uh, but you know, there's certainly a, a chance that, that uh, it, it'll take much longer than that. Well, let's talk about that, because one of the stories I saw, which kind of troubled me and kind of raised a red flag, and I wanted to get your read on this this morning, uh, was the story, and I'll go again back to what's going on with Moderna in, in Massachusetts these days. Uh, they've done, as you say, phase one, and it was some pretty encouraging results. There are some that are suggesting, look, skip phase two, because we're kind of in a hurry. Well, let's just go to phase three, which I guess is, is mass uh, testing like this. Uh, it's skipping a step like that is is that really is is that advisable? I mean, because historically, I can go back to well, thalidomide for one, which was supposed to yeah. be a wonder drug way back when, until we found out, whoa, didn't see that side effect coming. Uh, same thing with yeah. the, the, uh, I suppose a cure for HIV back in I guess the early 1980s, which ended up killing an awful lot of people. Yeah. Uh, is it is it prudent to go? Let's do step two and then step three. Well, yeah, I I, I think it is. I think what they can actually do is blend a stage two into a, a phase two into a phase three and really phase two and phase three look to see they still look for safety and now they're starting to look at efficacy on a medium scale and then efficacy on a much larger scale in the phase three studies uh and i think what they're many of these uh studies are doing is they're 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 not really skipping they're sort of blending uh, phase two with phase three. So, for example, with Moderna, they talked about enrolling about 600 or some odd people into what was what's going to be this phase two study in the coming months, like actually starting immediately and hopefully having results of that in the coming months, and then just rapidly expanding that uh, later on in the fall. And certainly this group out of Oxford, which is also developing a really impressive vaccine, some of the results look fantastic from this Oxford study, um, they've finished. They've already had phase one studies complete, and they're now uh, enrolling about six thousand people, I believe, and should have some results of this phase two study by June. So, you know, there's different groups at different phases, and again, I appreciate that timing is important. We want a successful vaccine as soon as possible, but just because people are at the front of the pack, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the successful vaccine in the end. Some of them might be, but there might be other vaccines that are still in what we call preclinical studies that haven't even made it into human phase one trials that may also be extremely successful as well. So I just want to be uh, open-minded and patient, especially at a time where uh, I appreciate that we need something and we need something fast. Uh, it just we we just have to be mindful that you know obviously it may we might have some success but it, it might it might also be well into 2021 before we start to see something. 
Well, it seems that one of the factors there is that there seem to be two timelines that uh, that we're hearing about. One is a political timeline, and the other is, is the medical and scientific timeline, and uh, they seem to be vastly different. Uh, the political timeline seems to suggest that they think this thing could and should be done uh, toward the latter part of this year. But I saw Dr. Fauci again this weekend. I guess I don't know how they got a microphone in front of me. Seemed to have tried to <laughs> silence him, but be that as it might, uh, he's still saying, look, 12 to 18 months. Let's Let's be realistic about this. Do you agree with that? I do. I certainly do. Now, of course, we could always get lucky, right? It's, it's, I, I, I'm completely open-minded to you know having some of these vaccines that are already in or entering phase two studies that show that they're safe, that show that they're effective, and then we have the manufacturing capabilities to mass produce them. That that could really happen, but we also have to be prepared for the very likely scenario that it doesn't. And, you know, I don't want to quash anyone's hopes and dreams. I mean, it would be wonderful if that happened. And it still might. But I just think people have to be mindful that most of these fail. And, and, and that's just the nature of the beast. When you're developing a new drug or a new vaccine, most of these fail. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it would not, no one would bat an eye if it took until, you know, mid to late 2021 before something came to market. And, may, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but maybe even later than that. Well, I'm reminded of Thomas Edison's line when he was trying to develop a light bulb, and he says, "I have not found thirty. I have not failed thirty-five times. I found thirty-five things that don't work, uh, and moved on from there, and eventually gave up." Which brings us to the president, if I could. I got a few minutes left here, doctor, and I got to ask you about this. Uh, the uh, revelation by uh, Donald Trump over the weekend that he is taking hydroxychloroquine right now, which of course is a malaria drug. He had been touting this for months now. Uh, the medical profession, including his own doctors at the CDC and others, have said, "Don't do that. Uh, we don't know that." Uh, there's a concern here, and, and of course, he tried to justify this by saying that lots of doctors and frontline care workers are taking this, which is not technically true. There is a case study that's going on with some frontline workers, but it's not as if this is widespread usage, is it? No, no, it certainly isn't. So I think there's a few key points here. The first point is that there are well-designed clinical trials that are answering this question right now. They're looking to see if hydroxychloroquine or its related drug chloroquine can be used to prevent infection if someone was exposed or can be used to treat infection. So those trials are ongoing. And these are well-designed clinical trials that will answer that question. The data that we have now are from what we would call observational studies. There's just not the highest quality of evidence. Not all evidence is created equally. And the data we have now is not from the highest quality evidence. Uh, and, and most of it suggests that hydroxychloroquine doesn't really have a major impact in COVID-19. Some shreds of data say it may be a little bit helpful. Some say it, it isn't. We certainly know what the side effects of this are, and it can certainly have complications, neurologic or cardiac complications. So the key point here is we don't yet have conclusive data whether or not this should be used in that setting. And, of course, we know that it can be dangerous if it is used inappropriately. So no one listening should be even considering taking this medication unless it's prescribed by a physician and unless you're using it in an, in an appropriate manner for an appropriate condition. Um, and, and I think that's, those are the, yeah, those are the important points. A lot of people here, oh, Donald Trump's taking it. We've already heard about, you know, case reports of people stockpiling this and taking this medication and even causing some harm to themselves from taking this medication inappropriately. So we got to avoid that. Only take it if it's prescribed by a doctor and use it for the appropriate condition at the appropriate time.
Yeah, the medication as technically used now for, is malaria and also for lupus. As a matter of fact, uh, when he first talked about this a couple of months ago, uh, I talked to somebody who was actually dealing and living with lupus, and, and they were very concerned at that time that there was going to be a shortage of the drug for those that really need it uh, because of the tests. Uh, yeah, and, there certainly and, was. And there's In many st- parts of the world, people were stockpiling it, and the yeah. people who actually needed the medication couldn't get access to it. Frightening stuff. And uh, we do know that there are some harmful side effects, including it stops your heart. Uh, which is something that I guess the president, I'm told, notwithstanding the fact that he claims that he's one of the healthiest people in, in America, uh, that he does have some cardiac concerns, and, and you'd have to wonder about that. And his own physician, uh, I guess, bowed to his wishes on this. So, well, we'll, we'll see what happens in situations like this. But I, I guess the takeaway from all of this discussion at this point, Doctor, is we're not there yet. Uh, it would be wonderful if there is, a, 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 you know, a huge breakthrough in this. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is I guess time and time again, uh, it's it's going to be a, a long, hard road to try to find something that we know is going to be effective in a situation like this. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, luckily we've, you know, in, in such a short amount of time, I mean, we've only known this virus has existed for about five months. We are really sitting on the cusp of having the results of some fantastic clinical trials become available. And in fact, we've already heard some early results of a drug called remdesivir. Uh, Anthony Fauci was discussing the results yep, of this yep. publicly a couple of weeks ago. I think the, the actual peer-reviewed manuscript should be published soon so the medical and scientific community can pour over that and really determine how we can integrate that into our routine clinical care for sick people with COVID-19. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these papers uh, and, and this data come out in the, in, in the weeks ahead so, you know, this is really in the very near future. We will know what we can use to treat this. We will know what drugs may not, which we thought were helpful, might not be helpful in the end. And we'll actually have some data to back up some of the decisions that we're making, which is a well, certainly going to be welcome rather than, you know, listening to, you know, individual A or individual B grandstand and say this drug is going to work and this drug's not going to work. Let's make some data-driven decisions here. Absolutely. And I agree with you. Listen, I'm totally on side with this. I mean, if there's a breakthrough and they can get a, a vaccine uh, sooner than later, that's going to be great for everybody. I'm, I'm dying for the fact of getting back to a Tiger Cat game or my 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 you know, canceled trip to Fenway Park in Boston to go and watch the Red Sox play. Oh, uh, and that's not going to happen anytime. Sorry about that, doctor. But <laughs> But the reality here, I guess, is, is let's temper our enthusiasm because, as we talked about a couple of seconds ago, the other side of it is like we've been looking for a cure for HIV for over 30 years now, and we're not there yet. So sometimes it comes quickly, sometimes uh, not so quickly. Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely, absolutely the case. Having said that, you know, not all viruses are created equally. I think some will be, and some infections are easier to treat, easier to manage, easier to create vaccines for. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, I'm not a betting guy. I, I'm not <laughs> a betting person, but I do bet on human ingenuity. And given the unlimited brain power and unlimited resources uh, being poured into treatments, preventions, vaccines, understanding the dynamics of this infection, I think we are seeing things that we've never seen before in the history of humankind. And I am very optimistic that we will have good drugs to treat this, good drugs to prevent this. I am optimistic that we will have a vaccine that will, you know, have some role, whether or not it's completely protective. It may be uh, involved in significantly mitigating the severity of illness or reducing the chance of getting infection. I think we will have this and we will have this, you know, sooner rather than later, faster than for most infections. And, uh, you know, these are all good things. It's just but it, it, we have to let good science take a bit of a, take a little bit of time. 
Always uh, enjoyable and entertaining uh, and educational to hear our, our conversations, Doctor. Reassuring at the same time. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, we'll watch this evolve over the next little while, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Appreciate it, though. Look forward to chatting soon. Take care. Dr. Ivan Bogosh from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joe Biden, who is, uh, well, for all intents and purposes, the Democratic nominee for the uh, presidential race. Uh, the election, of course, is going to be in November of this year. Uh, made some news over the weekend. Uh, he says that if he becomes president, he will scrap the permits for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, which uh, raised uh, the eyebrows of an awful lot of people down in the states because uh, President Trump has already signed off on a number of the uh, the aspects of that to, to get this thing moving once again. Uh, and, the, of course, the government of Alberta is uh, pretty ticked off about this because they've invested an awful lot of money uh, to try to get this pipeline going. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder from the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McCarthy University here in Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm great, Bill. Uh, in, on one side of the coin here, Marvin, this is not really a shocking story because uh, Biden was part of the Obama administration, which really kind of put the brakes on this, this project, weren't they? Right. So just to get everybody up to speed on this, the Keystone XL pipeline, which is designed to take oil from the Alberta oil sands down into the United States, and then at that point that pipeline would connect to other pipelines that could take the oil to refineries in perhaps say, uh, Louisiana or maybe into Texas, things like that. Uh, we've been talking about the Keystone XL pipeline, like all pipeline projects, for the better part of a decade. And during the <coughs> Obama administration, there were some uh, key permits that had to be approved. And Mr. Obama waited and waited and waited. It took the better part of three years as there were more hearings held. And then finally he came down with the decision, no, no, I'm not going to approve the Keystone XL. It doesn't matter that you, you the uh, people behind this, that's TransCanada Pipelines, or that's what it was called at the time now, TC Energy. It doesn't matter that you've reached an agreement with Nebraska and you've solved the problem in South Dakota. No, I'm not going to agree with it. And then, of course, there was an election in 2016, and, and we saw Donald Trump elected, and almost within a month of becoming President of the United States in early 2017, Donald Trump said, this is nonsense, and I'm signing off on it. Now, that's, that would be great, except these pipelines take a long time to build. And as you know, there, there are ups and downs through all of this. Earlier this year, one of those downs was that some of the financing that TC Energy had required to build this pipeline fell apart. And that's when the province of Alberta stepped in with $1.5 billion dollars in terms of a loan with various guarantees to get this done. And so they went back to work at all of this. And they have been building, they have been building the Keystone XL pipeline. It just takes three or four years to do that. Early May, just a couple of weeks ago, another little setback, a court ruling in the United States around how the pipeline could cross any rivers uh, suggested there was going to be some setbacks. But TC Energy said, we can work around all of that. And then we got to this weekend when... Uh, uh, candidate Biden, person running for president, said, if I'm elected, I'm going to cancel this permit. And to be candid, Bill, I don't quite know what that means, because it's not like the pipeline is still just a figment of someone's imagination. Construction is moving apace. In fact, it was about a month ago in the middle of April that we had an update from TC Energy that said they were ahead of schedule on rebuilding this. They thought mm -hmm. the pipeline would start to operate in 2023, uh, but originally it was to be the end of 2023. Now it's scheduled for the early part of 2023. You know, can you pull the plug on a half-constructed pipeline? And if you do, 
wouldn't there be some compensation for the people who've been building it? So, you know, I, I know that's what he said. I just don't quite know what it all means. Well, I'm not sure that they do either, because as you say, this has been uh, cloaked in controversy for many, many years. And, and you know, when, when the Obama administration made the decision to put the brakes on this, uh, there was an awful lot of criticism at that time from an awful lot of people, uh, you know, suggesting in some camps that he was caving into some of the celebrities uh, that were opposed to this, Leo DiCaprio and others that were saying this was wrong for the environment. And there are quite a few people, not just the celebrities, but they were the, the some of the most vocal voices on this. And they technically seemed to be Democratic supporters. Supporters, and there was a concern that this was more of a political decision than an environmental decision. Uh, and I'm not sure that question's been answered yet. <laughs> well, uh, let me just take you back to that time period. Originally, it looked like this was going to be an easy thing for Mr. Obama to cancel because many of the state governments were opposed to it. The state mm -hmm. governments that would benefit said, well, we don't want it either. So, yes, you've got got the celebrity environmentalists and others, but the states themselves. So if nobody seems to want this pipeline other than, quote, big business, why go through with it? But then there were a series of agreements reached with all those different states, and rather than being opposed to it, suddenly those states became strong supporters. And as you might guess, speaking of politics, many of these states are in the Midwest, typically not a stronghold for Democrats. And although President Obama was reaching the end of his term in office, he was trying to tee it up, if you will, for the next Democratic candidate. So an approval might have allowed uh, states like South Dakota and, and Nebraska, Kansas, to go Democrat rather than Republican. But no, he, he stuck to his guns, and there were lots of environmentalists who said, good for you, you know, uh, America can become self-sufficient on oil without this Canadian oil, and this Canadian oil, which many people call dirty oil, coming from the tar sands, good for you. And that seemed to be the end of it. Then, of course, you get a sea change. And with a president who's pro-business, like Donald Trump, uh, anything he could do to both erase the Obama legacy and at the same time support business, he would do. The difference is that four years have passed, uh, have almost passed anyway, three years have passed for sure, and construction has been happening. There is pipe that has been ordered and is stockpiled. People are employed. Jobs are out there. And, and I, I'm just not sure... Uh, if what Mr. Biden says can happen. And, and let me just give you another version of this. You know, in Canada here, every day we're shortly going to have a briefing from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and it really upsets the opposition parties who can't seem to get much traction. Nobody's listening to the Conservatives or the NDP. The Liberals kind of have a, a free pulpit here. Well, Donald Trump's been doing the exact same thing. And if I'm the Democratic challenger, normally I'd be out campaigning. I'd be holding rallies. I would be making speeches. I would be able to make a case to vote for me, but instead Joe Biden's been effectively silenced because he doesn't have a platform during this COVID-19 crisis. So I think part of this as well is he's got to shout a little louder to be heard. He's got to say something a little more controversial to get some ink. And I think maybe that is behind this, perhaps not as much as a real, I'm going to truly not build this pipeline, but I need to do something to get some attention. Yeah, but why this subject? I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> It's not as if Trump hasn't given him enough ammunition about the way they've handled COVID, uh, that he could be a critic to that, but yet he's been relatively silent on that. Uh, and I, I agree with you totally about when or why he would he pick something like this. We should mention, by the way, 
And you're right. I mean, in a few minutes, we're going to carry the prime minister's update, and I'm sure during the question and answer with the media, uh, this topic is going to come up. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland did weigh in on this over the weekend, uh, saying that, look, Canada supports the uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. I think it's going to be a job creator, and it's going to be great for both economies. So Canada's official position is pro-pipeline. Obviously, Alberta's condition on this is pro-pipeline. So, uh, you know, do we have a problem here of a future uh, rift here between a future Biden administration, if in fact that happens, and the Canadian government? Yeah, well, certainly the answer would be yes to all that. Now, just to add one more thing to Christia Freeland's comments, she also said that this pipeline fits within a climate change mandate. Even though I know many people who listen to us uh, are upset about oil and would rather see an oil-free economy, uh, for the moment anyway, at least probably for the next 20 years anyway, oil is going to play a part, whether it is for fuel or as a feedstock to make plastics, because we still need plastics in what we do. So there is an argument made that this is actually more environmentally friendly than the current way oil from Alberta is making its way to the market, and that's by train car. And if you've been following things in Saskatchewan, there's been derailments, there's been fires, certainly not as smooth operating as many pipelines. So she's making that argument, and I think as well, if I'm Prime Minister Trudeau, remember I was shut out of seats in Alberta and Saskatchewan. I need to be seen as fighting for these jobs, both in terms of recovery from COVID, but also just because this base has been so hard hit given the low oil prices. So, uh, yeah, I think for sure if Biden were to stick to this tone and get elected, there would be a lot of diplomacy happening in November, December, and January to see if that position is set absolutely in stone or if there's some wiggle room to get through this. All right, I'm going to play devil's Africa here for a second, Marvin. I want to get your read on this. Do we even need it now? I mean, after COVID-19, the oil industry is on its knees, mm-hmm. especially here in North America. Uh, Enbridge has delayed uh, their pipeline that was supposed to run through our area, of course, uh, because they're concerned about the economic impact of COVID and whether or not they're actually going to be able to afford this right now. Uh, we don't know about the future of, of, of the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry here in North America because of what's happened with COVID. Uh, is there is there some justification in saying, look, let's hold off on this altogether until we find out just where we go? Or is fossil fuel still such an integral part of of the economies of both countries that we need to move forward on this? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there's sort of two versions to that question. Uh, Would it be prudent now to take a pause? Certainly given the economy the way it is, the the massive unemployment, uh, what have you, and the uncertainty about what our new normal will be whenever we get past this, Uh, There are many people taking a pause. Uh, We've seen airlines, for instance, say, you know, all those planes I was going to order, let's let's just keep that on hold for a moment. I'm not sure I'm going to need them. So I think a pause is not that crazy of an idea. But I also, and and this is where I'm sorry, Bill, I'm, I'm looking into a crystal ball that many people don't like, but I don't think our new normal is going to look much different than our old normal. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there. I've talked to medical experts, some suggest six months, some suggest three years to get back to where we were in January and February, but I just know that consumers liked the way we were living, and they are going to try to get as close to that as possible, which includes hopping on a plane, flying somewhere during the winter months, or exploring Europe or another part of the world, driving your car, going camping, um, doing all the things that we need oil to help us do. So I think I still believe in the long run the Keystone XL makes some sense. If it had to be paused for a few months, that's fine. But 
Bill, these projects, because they take so long to build, you have to build through both good times and bad times, also knowing that when it's done, there's still going to be good times and bad times. You're really looking at a 20 to 25-year time horizon, not a two-month time horizon. So, you know, if you needed to to delay it for financing, but I, I really think... Oil is still going to be such a part of our economy, it probably should move forward. And in fact, oddly enough, a question that was asked of TC Energy during COVID-19, could you even keep constructing? The answer was yes. Building a pipeline is a socially distant uh, activity to do. They've actually been making good time because they haven't had to fight traffic and other kinds of things around them. They've, they've actually gotten faster during this time period. So they're not showing any signs of wanting to slow this up. This is really elementary economics, isn't it, Marvin? I mean, you've got to get product to market, and, and well, in this case, refinery, uh, and ultimately to market in situations like this. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate by presenting that argument, but, I mean, the other side of that argument is uh, if you're looking at a COVID-19 economic recovery, uh, employment's going to be a big part of that, and there's a lot of people already working on this project. It's telling them to go home now, this is all over, is not going to help the situation. No, and remember that many of those jobs, uh, the part in Canada is the part that's being constructed quite quickly. Those jobs that are going to help actually be American jobs. So for a future president to say, I'm not sure I want 10,000 American jobs during this recovery is a little odd. On Canada's standpoint, why do we want the pipeline? Well, if we can deliver oil by pipeline, that is a cheaper method of distribution, which also means the oil producers in Alberta will keep more money per barrel. Alberta oil right now is sold at a bit of a discount because people buying that oil know they need to use this expensive train car method of getting the oil to the market. Uh, So, you know, again, if you want to help those two economies, Alberta and Saskatchewan, bounce back, getting good routes for their oil. And and we've got two pipelines. Remember the Trans Mountain, which now appears to be moving forward. It appears the deal with the Wet'suwet'en have gone forward. and We can make that. I'm sorry, the the Wet'suwet'en is actually on a different pipeline. That's that natural gas pipeline. But we can get some of these pipelines going. But the, the Keystone XL gets you to the American market, which is still the one of the biggest consumers of oil in the world. I think if I, Mr. Trudeau, this is all part of my economic recovery plan. Okay, Marvin Ryder, political advisor to the stars. Uh, is is the Prime Minister's best attack uh, right now is to simply reinforce their, their support for this and just leave it at that? Because uh, the election is still six months away. Right, and I, I think that is the case. Don't get caught up in American politics here one way or another. He and Christian Freeland have done a great job, generally speaking, of not getting involved with Trump's politics. Trump can say outrageous things, and they kind of brush it off and, and duck around the corner. And I, on balance, I think that's the right way to deal with this. We don't know who the victor is going to be in the fall. And even if Mr. Biden is elected, and I know that's what he is saying today, but the hallmark of leadership is that sometimes what you say today can change in the future under different circumstances. When he sees more things, Mr. Biden might say, well, now I can see there's an advantage to this. So I wouldn't really fan the flames of this. I would try to sweep this under the carpet as quickly as I could and then watch what develops and then deploy the diplomacy then. Well, political promises, uh, take them at face value or take them for what you will. Uh, we all remember, of course, uh, Jean Chrétien's famous, I'm going to scrap the GST promise, and, until he, and he won that election. But then I guess his political and financial advisor said, you know, how much is it going to cost? And he said, well, well, well okay, uh, forget I said that. Uh, I think you might see the same thing with Biden here. There's an awful lot of jobs at stake here, and the U.S. economy, 
is is going to need uh, that that kind of job and those kind of works. And, and notwithstanding, I, I agree totally, Marvin, about looking at this and, and some people are looking at this COVID recovery, economic recovery, as a chance to reset and look at more green projects. Uh, but on the same token, uh, you know, this is still a, and will be for the longest time, I guess. That fossil fuels are, are a part of our economy, whether we like it or not. It, we can't just switch that switch that turn off all of a sudden and say we're not going to do this anymore. Right, and and I guess I I try to not use the word fossil fuel as much as just plain oil, because we use oil in so many ways other than fuel. Even if we all switch to electric cars, even if we stop flying altogether. We need the, the oil feedstock to do so many other products that our life depends on. I think of health care products and the disposable things that we use there. Many of them are using petroleum to help make all of that possible. So to think that we're going to, to wean ourselves off oil completely, no. We may change the fuels, but we're still going to need oil. And so I, I, you know, I, I think people maybe have a false sense of this. They believe that if I don't build the Keystone XL pipeline, all of that oil sands oil will stay in the ground. It's never going to come out. That's not going to happen. It's going to come out of the ground, but it'll be sent by train cars. Personally, I prefer oil being sent by pipelines than train cars, and I think since I know it's going to come out, that's why I prefer the Keystone XL pipeline. I know that doesn't sound maybe like the best educated opinion, but if it's going to come out, better to do it the right way. Well, of course, every time we talk about rail transportation of oil, we think of Lac Megantique and, and the tragedy that happened a few years ago in Quebec. And, and I know that doesn't happen every day, but it happens a lot more than we're aware of with uh, derailments and things of this nature. So there are pitfalls, I guess, anytime there's a transportation of, of that kind of a product. But uh, but you're right. I think on balance, we look at pipelines as the better way to do this. And uh, I'd be surprised if this actually becomes much of an issue. And I, I'm not so sure it's going to become much of an issue even down in the States. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think the Prime Minister should just probably restate that, and he, I'm sure he will in about 20 minutes. But uh, I'm not so sure that Trump's going to make much of a big deal. He's got other stuff on his plate right now. And uh, I, and I think uh, Democrats, are, if, if they want to get Biden elected, are going to have to think of a lot more than the pipeline issue because that doesn't really impact an awful lot of people right across the country. There are larger issues that I think he's going to have to take a bite into. Right. Well, take it back to the start of our conversation. If Mr. Biden is feeling neglected, and wants to put something out there to get some attention. There are just so many other things, health care being primarily. COVID-19 reminds us, at least in the United States, of some of the tenuous natures of their health care system with so much private intervention. He, along with President Obama, were the authors of Obamacare, which 8 million people got health care that didn't have health care before. That kind of a thing today, I think, would resonate much more with voters across the United States than, than a question about a pipeline that's already being constructed and, and might, if you cancel it, cost you several billion dollars of, of fees to compensate people for that cancellation. It just doesn't seem to me to be a winning argument for him at this point. But, again, he, he's got to do something. I guess he can't just be in isolation himself. So he's picked upon this, but I, I don't think it's going to do much for him. He'll find a better topic soon. Well, we'll see how this plays out in the future. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. Thank you, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.